Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I've always wanted to be on a short list for something. I don't think I've ever yes. been on a short list. Have you? No, I mean, I mean, I was going to make a short joke about myself, but that's okay. You're not that short. Thank you. That's nice. That's nice. You're, you're like 5'9", right? 5'7". Oh, wow. I just carry myself with some Napoleonic energy. I think it's what it is. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, November 18th, can Joe Biden solve California's housing crisis? Probably not. Probably not, at least not unilaterally. But this fortnight, we'll be taking a look about how a Biden presidency may impact California housing policy. And we have the perfect guest to discuss that with. Who do we have? This is Carol Galante, a repeat guest. She is the faculty director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. And importantly for our episode, well, importantly that, but also she was a top official in the Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Obama administration. We will also be talking about the election results when it comes to California housing propositions, both statewide and a couple local ones too. But first, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And this avocado takes us back to election night in your old haunt. Yes, my old haunt of San Diego, a wonderful place in California. My old colleagues at Voice of San Diego do a little thing where they go visit polling stations and talk to voters. So, Man on the street. That's right. So in this case, they found a couple, Richard and Geraldine Walker in La Jolla. And for the uninitiated, that's a sort of a Tony Beachside neighborhood in San Diego. Where you see San Diego is. Indeed it is, yes. And in San Diego, there was a measure on the ballot called Measure E that would uh, increase the height limit and add more, potentially more development of all kinds in the Midway District in San Diego, which is known for having the sports arena where the Clippers basketball team played in the past before they moved to LA, fun fact. Mm -hmm. And also known for its proliferation of strip clubs. Mm-hmm. So those uh, two facts not necessarily correlated. Go ahead. <laughs> Big move to try to redevelop this area from what it was. And Richard and Geraldine Walker had a quite the hot take. They voted what was described as a resounding yes on Measure E. And Geraldine Walker said that area is a slum. So that's why they wanted to vote yes. But they had a warning for anybody, San Diego politician or otherwise, who wanted to do something else raise height limits in any other neighborhood in San Diego. Geraldine said, quote, we will shed blood if anybody tries to enlarge that choice beyond that area. So there we are. Height limits, okay to be raised in slums, anywhere else, violence. I guess this also begs the question of how tall is too tall for a strip club? And I know you have a lot of opinions on this, Liam. (laughs) To this guy, I don't know. So those two voters, Richard and Geraldine, who do you think they voted for in the San Diego mayoral contest? They had two options. Assemblyman Todd Gloria, who we've actually had on the podcast before, and she a city council member? Councilwoman, yes, representing that area, yes. Yes, uh, Barbara Bree. And housing was actually kind of one of the wedge issues, maybe the wedge issue, between Gloria and Bree, both Democrats. So the Walkers voted for Barbara Bree 
who was sort of the more, if you will, neighborhood opposition candidate of choice on housing issues. And in fact, he was quoted, Richard Walker was quoted, who said he's known Bree since graduate school and said that people would be, quote, idiots if they didn't vote for her. So there you go. Nice. Doesn't pull punches with the language. So we would be remiss if we didn't address a even bigger avocado in the room, which is a non-housing avocado, but arguably the most absurd California political story of the year, maybe even since I've been covering California politics. I don't know how you feel about this. What am I referring to? The fancy meal that Governor Gavin Newsom had with lobbyists and advisors at the French Laundry relatively recently. And there's been much scuttlebutt in the Capitol Press Corps over who exactly attended this meal, along with Governor Gavin Newsom and his wife and Jason Kinney, the lobbyist that you referenced. And we've learned the names of a couple more people who attended the meal. But my guess, of course, considering the types of folks that really enjoy incredibly expensive meals at prestige restaurants, and Newsom only hangs with other people who I say are kind of sartorially sophisticated. Okay. And when you combine those two things together, the name Liam Dillon kind of immediately pops to mind. Oh, I see. I was wondering whether I was going to be asked to confirm or deny my attendance at some point. So please, you can quash the rumors right now. Were you in attendance at the 50th birthday bash super spreader extravaganza? I was not. Put the rumors to bed. No way of confirming it, though. I will say, though, that I have been to the French Laundry before and, frankly, underwhelmed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is that the most you've ever spent on a meal? This is a dividing line between people. Go ahead. <laughs> what, what is the most you've ever spent on a meal? I'm trying to think. I think I've spent $300. Yeah. My birthday last year at Single Thread in Healdsburg, that was an extraordinary meal. I can tell you the most I've ever spent on chicken nuggets and at how McDonald's. Much is that? I once spent 50 bucks on chicken nuggets. Wow. When I, when I was a reporter yeah. in New York City. Uh-huh. And was I remember- bet? Huh? Was this a bet? I thought you said, was this at the Met? <laughs> <laughs> and I wish it was. One day I non-ironically said, I think I'm going to go to McDonald's. And the look on my New York coworkers' faces was if I told them, oh, I'm going to go outside, stab one of these rats and kill it or and eat it shortly afterwards. And that really pissed me off because a lot of people eat at McDonald's. There shouldn't be anything embarrassing about that. Yeah, no stigma. And so then I was just like, well, f it, I'm going to get nuggets for the office. And, I uh, see. I blew see. 50 yeah. bucks there. And I'm sure you were celebrated as a conquering hero when you returned. I mean, I wish I could say I, I was. I had a lot of barbecue sauce that day. And then I don't really remember what happened after that. Look, it's unlikely that I'm going to go out and initiate a nuggets purchase. But if someone's going to so. put a nugget in front of me, you better believe I'm eating it. So even though I probably would have given you the similar scorn that your New York colleagues would have, I most certainly would have reaped the benefits of the nugget influx. There is no doubt that you would have given me the same level of scorn that my, <laughs> my New York colleagues would have. I don't think anyone was disputing that. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's enough on French Laundry Gate, which I'm assuming can't get more absurd, but who knows? Let's talk about the results of the two marquee housing propositions on California's statewide ballots, Prop 21 and Prop 19. Let's start with Prop 21, the headliner, which would have allowed cities to expand rent control to a bunch of new properties. What happened to it, Liam? Lost by a lot. 
And was this any different than what happened in 2018? So basically exactly the same. Like it lost by 20 points in 2018, losing again by 20 points in 2020. And why was it such an overwhelming defeat? Or at least isolate what you think is the most compelling reason why it was such an overwhelming defeat. To be a little more serious, you know, I think we saw what we saw back in 2018. The proponents of this, chiefly financially, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation out of LA, were significantly outspent by the opponents, basically big landlords in California. Two years ago, it was like three to one. This time it was a little more than two to one. And the ads were overwhelming. And so I think the message that the folks on the pro side wanted to get out there was sort of swamped by the message that the no side was able to present. And is there anything oversimplifying and reductionist about that explanation? That simply the sheer amount of money that the California Apartment Association and their allies threw at this inevitably led to the defeat of Prop 21? Yes. I mean, I think that is oversimplifying. Uh, two things immediately come to mind. One being, it's not like the supporters of this were poor. In this year in particular, they coughed up you know, $40 million for this campaign, which in any other circumstances, typically more than enough to win a ballot measure campaign, right? So a lot of ability to spread a message, even if they were outspent by a lot, number one. And number two, I think the structure of the ballot measure, both this time and before, could lead folks to confusion and lead folks to sort of not quite be understand what in fact the ballot measure was going to do. You know, as we've made clear, no one was actually voting on expanding rent control. What they were doing was giving local governments more of an ability to do rent control. Mm -hmm. And all the words that I'm saying, it's very easy for confusion to occur, right? And so there are a lot of ways to structure a ballot measure. And in this case, both two years ago and now, there was a lot of confusion about how this particular measure was structured, and I think you could certainly place a lot of the blame on that on the proponents. I also want to point out that it was not just this rent control measure that failed at the ballot box in 2020. I think there are a couple local initiatives that we should point out also failed. Uh, there was a rent control proposal in Sacramento mm -hmm. that lost. There was a rent control proposal in Burbank that lost. So yeah. all in all, it was a rough night for tenants' rights groups in California, maybe with the exception of there were some prominent tenants activists that got elected to local offices in the Bay Area, which right. some tenants' rights groups have kind of hung their hat on as a silver lining to all of this. But I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's a little simplistic to say, well, they outspent us, and that's why we lost. Also because you had, starting in 2018, basically three years to educate Californians on this issue. That should be enough time to communicate, especially with the resources at your disposal, what exactly it is that your initiative is going Doing. to do, right? I, I think tenants rights groups will point to, well, if you look at the polling of how rent control just pulls as a concept among Californians, that does get a majority of Californians supporting it. Thus, kind of the only explanation is that landlord groups, you know, distorted this initiative beyond recognition. And I think that explains part of it, but it doesn't sure. explain the fact that this lost twice and the margin by which it lost. I think there's a lot of Californians who simply don't want to expand cities' abilities to enact rent control. Yep, it's a good summary. 
Okay, let's talk about Prop 19. This was the initiative technically put on the ballot by the state legislature, but really put on the ballot by the California Association of Realtors that gave a property tax break to seniors, California seniors, when they buy a new property mm-hmm. and paid for that by taking away a tax break from adult children who, when they inherited property from their parents, would rent it out while still inheriting their parents' very low property tax break. This was your Lebowski loophole story. Yes. Got a little wordy at the end, but that was a pretty good summary of this ballot measure. Yes. Thank you. It was very convoluted. What happened with Prop 19? So it won 51% to 49. I think a little closer than, well, definitely closer than I thought it was going to be. I guess we'll kind of see what is going to happen. I mean, I think we can know at this point is those 55 and older will be winners because they'll have a tax break when they move. That's for sure. The losers here are, of course, the heirs of California homeowners who are no longer going to get a big tax break when they inherit their parents' property. Also, the winners here are the realtors who will do very well when there are more home sales, both from older homeowners wanting to move now with their new tax break and from adult children who inherit their parents' homes and now decide that they'd rather sell it than big property tax bill. But beyond that, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of talk about local government tax revenue and who wins Mm -hmm. and who loses from that. And I think it's going to be very unclear. We're not really going to quite know for a few years which governments are going to win and which governments are going to lose. I think to me, the most pressing question coming out of this is what happens to local housing markets as a result of this measure? Like, are you actually going to see a significant number of people move because of this? Certainly the realtors think that will happen. But I think more compellingly in terms of a kind of public policy view, does that mean that you get more inventory and prices will be lower than they otherwise would have, especially for starter homes, right? For young homeowners who want their first crack at homeownership. And that was certainly part of the marketing pitch from realtors pushing this measure was, well, we're going to get a bunch of new homes on the market that these seniors want to downsize from, and that opens up opportunities for first-time homeownership. Well, now we'll see how that actually plays out. So I look forward to the white papers. And somewhat of a countervailing force on that. I mean, 55 and older, I mean, you're not that old. You know, I have colleagues who, when I talked about elderly people benefiting from this, got mad because they're like, we're not elderly. And so these are folks obviously with families, with kids, right? And they get a tax break when they move. And so because of that tax break, they have more buying power in moving into, say, these two, three bedroom, four bedroom homes than, say, a young renter, young renters just trying to start a family. They don't get that tax break. And so it is a question whether these quote unquote starter homes will open up to the extent that perhaps they've been pitched. Real quickly, talk about what happened with Prop 15, the split roll measure that would have meaningfully reformed Proposition 13 to raise taxes on commercial property values. That measure lost. It was pretty close, but it's still lost. What do you think that portends for broader efforts at reforming Prop 13, especially the residential portion of Prop 13? Well, I mean, a big part of the campaign against Prop 15 was your homes are next. And so I think it, again, puts that, I mean, there was an attempt to go after this third rail issue in California politics. It was close, but it didn't pass. And I mean, in some cases, groups have been pushing the split rail idea for as long as I can remember. I mean, I remember I first moved here in San Diego and seeing a headline saying, you know, groups push for split roll. And they didn't actually put it on the ballot until now. And Mm -hmm. so it was a big expensive campaign and taking a whack at this big thing. And I just don't know how you gear up again 
to to fight this again very soon. I think because it was close, it doesn't kill the idea forever, but it obviously is a chill on whether folks want to do something like this again. I agree. And I, the fact that the specter of raising residential property taxes became an issue in this particular campaign when the proponents really wanted to tamp down that threat, but that still, I think, remains a politically potent threat, which means the prospects of reforming or changing the residential side of Prop 13 are pretty dim anytime soon. As a coda to our Prop 21 rent control conversation, so I saw some questions on Twitter about whether the legislature is going to take this up. My answer to that is very, 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 very likely no. I don't really see a world in which that happens, considering the legislation that they passed last year, the anti-rent gouging bill. Yes, this thing lost by 20 points, but in my opinion, still harder to get something like that through the Capitol than to get Californians to vote for it. Okay, let's talk about what a Biden presidency means for California's housing crisis. Let's start with Biden's housing plan and his lack of a plan initially. Yeah, it was really funny. I mean, longtime pod listeners, friends of the pod, etc. Back in the spring prior to California's primary, we did a big rundown of all of what was at that point, I guess, like close to, I don't know, a 10, right? Democratic presidential candidates that were running and all of their housing plans. And the only one who really didn't have one was Joe Biden. I remember we sort of sloughed it off, right? Ah, Biden, no plan, and kind of kept going, right? But now you look at what is on a joebiden.com slash housing, and you're inundated with a laundry list of very specific and very detailed and lengthy housing ideas. Yes, it is a comprehensive plan in many ways. Yes. What do you think is the most notable element of the plan? So to me, the biggest ticket idea is he wants to fully fund the Section 8 housing program, which is well, the primary way that the federal government subsidizes low-income renters. And yes. so right now, there's roughly a quarter of those eligible for Section 8, where the government pays a portion of your rent to your landlord and you pay another one, depending on your income, that only a quarter of eligible renters get it. Biden wants to make it an entitlement like Medicare or things like that, where you just get it if you're eligible. And that would make no a dramatic impact. No more wait lists, right? A dramatic change for those folks now having access to housing subsidy that they don't right now. For me, that's the biggest takeaway. I think that also is out of many of the elements that he's outlined here, which we'll go over. That also seems to be one of the more politically perilous ones. That seems to be one where Mitch McConnell may have something to say about fully funding Section 8 and something that he would need congressional approval for as opposed to something he could do with a stroke of a pen via executive order or some administrative change. Right. Some other things that stuck out to me, tying federal dollars, so this could either be to build low-income housing, for infrastructure, for transportation, to, quote, developing a strategy for inclusionary zoning. Translate Um, that one. Translate it. Yeah, so this is a idea that we've become very familiar with here in California, where Governor Gavin Newsom and his predecessor, Governor Brown, have tried in various ways to both carrot and stick local governments into ending exclusionary zoning. The idea is, okay, local governments, if you don't, let's say, allow more density in your jurisdiction, then you don't get any of this good transportation money to fix roads or to build highways or to fix that bridge that's fallen apart down the street. I do think it's notable that even in the plan that he outlined, the plan doesn't say 
forcing cities to do this right, right, um, right. or otherwise yeah. coercing cities to do this or even yeah. a euphemistic way of saying so. Right. It is tying federal dollars to, quote, develop a strategy right. to do this. And I think those who may remain skeptical of local government's commitment to ending exclusionary zoning, I think may be uncomfortable with the wiggle room that that may imply. Okay, what else is in the plan that jumps out to you? Money, a lot of it, $13 billion for addressing homelessness over the next five years. And also, uh, we should note on this part, the president-elect is a supporter of the HEROES Act, which was the uh, bill that the the Democratic-controlled House representatives passed over the summer as a supplement for coronavirus aid, right, that has not passed the Senate. That bill would give $100 billion in emergency uh, rental assistance aid to deal with the pandemic. And so I think a big decision that the president is going to be facing certainly early in his tenure is what kind of coronavirus aid to further give and how much of housing aid will be there. Obviously, a big issue in California and the rest of the country. I think I saw a study. I don't want to get the number wrong. Is a Philadelphia Fed study recently that's like $1.7, $1.8 billion in back rent owed to California landlords since the pandemic began. A lot, a lot of money here that, of course, could have negative downstream effects both on tenants in terms of ultimately being evicted and on landlords and potentially facing foreclosure, right? And so that's a thing. And he does seem to be willing to turn the spigot on money-wise for housing in ways the Trump administration was not. But again, we come back to how much Congress is going to agree with that approach. I guess the other kind of theme that jumped out to me was an emphasis on homeownership as a vehicle for social mobility, which I think, you know, a certain portion of the left may not be enamored with. Those who don't want homes as a financial asset or, you know, think the appreciation of property values is artificially inflated for a variety of reasons and homeowners really shouldn't benefit it from it as much as they do. But there's a couple specific policy proposals that Biden puts out there to try to make homeownership more accessible, particularly to lower income Americans and black and brown Americans. There's a refundable tax credit for first time home buyers. That's kind of a repeat of one of the more popular Obama Great Recession remedies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you see kind of a, a doubling down on, uh, I don't want to say old school, but I guess kind of meat and potatoes right. approach yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to solving the housing crisis. Okay, let's get to what we said we would talk about at the beginning of the podcast, which mm-hmm. is how much power Joe Biden really has to fix some of the things that have gone wrong with California's housing situation. Yeah. Where do you want to start with this? I have my takes. You have your take. Let's start with the money. I mean, I think certainly the money would be helpful because the money is how you help build low-income housing and how you help build homeless housing and how you help build all these sorts of things, right? And certainly Section 8 would make a big difference in California for sure. But, you know, I think the money in and of itself is not going to solve anything. And I think we saw an example of that this week, right? I mean, the state auditor put out a report that showed that the state had left close to $3 billion essentially on the table in unused sort of technical speak, like unused bond capacity, right? That could have been gone towards helping further spur low-income housing development You know, this finding was very similar to what we at the Times found in terms of kind of difficult bureaucracy when it comes to building low-income housing in the state. Mm -hmm. And so, and the high cost adds to the high cost of building low-income housing in California, the highest in the country. And so like the money of itself, sure, will get you more affordable homes built, especially given the problems that the state has with how it handles 
programs is certainly not going to solve the problem or even go as far as it could if the systems the state have were better. I agree with that. I, I also think you will see the most immediate impact on California's housing woes are rental assistance relief yeah. and some homelessness spending. Because I think time horizon here is especially important because I, yeah. I think with a Biden presidency, it is fair to say in comparison to a Trump presidency, it is more likely that California will get a larger or second round of stimulus funding, which it can spend on a bunch of different things. And as you mentioned, a sizable portion of that funding may be specifically reserved for rental assistance. You will also likely see some of that funding go to Newsom's homelessness alleviation efforts, right, that have been launched in the wake of the pandemic. And I think also a broader support for a housing first approach for homelessness that focuses on, hey, let's get people into stable housing first and foremost, and then we'll deal with mental health and substance abuse issues right. later. You know, I, yeah. I don't think you're going to see something like, remember before the pandemic, everyone was terrified. I shouldn't say everyone. Uh, certain homelessness services providers and some state officials were scared that Trump was just going to set in the feds, for lack of a better That's word, right. yeah. to round up people on Skid Row and put them in some type of congregate living facility. Right. It's not going to happen under a Biden yeah. presidency. No. I think along with the money doesn't mean units theme that you specified, yeah. I am also skeptical that a Biden presidency will meaningfully change local government's resistance to approving new housing. I broadly agree, but I want to riff off that point a little bit because, you know, when Trump over the summer started talking about suburban housewives, you know, in the context of this weird, you know, this kind of regulation that he was rescinding, right? And very technical thing. But like, I do think that it brought to the conversation, this is what I think presidents do because of what they say and how they act. It brings issues to the forefront that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And so there was a lot of conversation about what the suburban lifestyle was and what that meant in the context of housing and the racial undertones and in many cases overtones of what that was. And so I think the conversation is a little bit different now and could be different under a Biden presidency because of how President Trump reflected this conversation. Can I give you the countervailing argument to that yes. counterargument? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think the way California politics works, because it is so blue in so yes. many ways, yes. it is actually more helpful for California Democrats like Scott Wiener yeah. to point at something Trump supports or opposes as, well, he supports that. Right. We should be doing the exact opposite. And you saw this when Trump ran that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which obliquely referenced SB 50 and yeah. Wiener's attempts at zoning reform. And Wiener must have sent out 7 million tweets and right. emails and I think some fundraising pitches based off of that. And I think because Trump was such anathema to California Democrats, something he opposes or support his particular policy position actually gives more ammo to the opposite of it. That's going to stay. People aren't going to forget Trump next year or the year after, right, mm, on, on this. I, 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 mean, I don't think it'll but, resonate in the same way. No, 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 I agree with that. But I, I guess people who want to change zoning in California are very clearly going to say, well, Trump didn't like this idea either, right? And do we stand with Trump? Somewhat similar to what we were when Ben Carson, Trump's 
HUD secretary declared himself a Yimby, yes. right? Um, there are many folks who don't like Yimbys who are saying, look, you guys align with Trump. And so it's the same thing from either direction. Yes, it will lessen, obviously, because he's not in power anymore, but it's still going to be there, and I think a prominent part of the debate. I don't think it'll be as prominent. As prominent is different than prominent. So we can, I don't think we it will be prominent. Simple. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll have to make a bet. My go-to would be $50 in nuggets. I don't want to bet a French Laundry <laughs> gift card. Full um, circle. Full circle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Anything else on a Biden presidency that you think we should hit? No, let's, uh, let's talk to Carol. We are here with Carol Galante. She's the faculty director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley and a former top HUD official in the Obama administration. Carol, thank you so much for being with us. Delighted. Thanks for having me. So tell us, how different should we expect a Biden administration to be on housing than the previous one? Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of differences um, between the last administration and the Biden administration. There will be much more active involvement by HUD on community development issues, on fair housing issues, on solving homelessness in a partnership-oriented way, as opposed to the way the Trump administration and the Carson administration um, behaved. Less tweets specifically targeted towards suburban women, you're saying? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So before you came on, Liam and I were discussing kind of the limits of presidential power to actually meaningfully improve California's housing crisis. And I think we were both kind of skeptical that at least the housing affordability crisis writ large, that a, a Biden administration could really make a dent in that. But I'm curious, you know, as someone who's actually worked for HUD, do you agree with that? Well, I do agree that the Biden administration alone, without Congress, won't be able to make transformative change in housing policy, housing programs in a way that will seriously impact production of new housing Mm -hmm. and affordability or subsidy of new housing. I think there are some other huge benefits that we can get even just from a change in philosophy about how to think about housing as a support network. So I think there's definitely benefit, but we're not going to solve it with the presidency alone. Can you give some examples of how that change in philosophy might affect practically things on the ground here in California? Yeah. What are those benefits? Well, I think there will definitely be a change in how we think about fair housing with this administration. The Trump administration rolled back the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule that the Obama administration worked so hard on and had just implemented. And I think the Biden administration at HUD will work to reverse that from a regulatory standpoint. And that is not a something that needs to happen at the congressional level. So I think that will be requiring communities to look at the impediments to a fairer, more equitable distribution of both housing subsidies and location of uh, affordable housing. And I do think, again, with some 
coordination with other agencies. I could see the HUD administration and the the Biden administration looking at barriers to new development in um, that some California communities, as we all know, <laughs> raise to keep people out. And I think there are some re- regulatory issues the HUD administration could do and some incentives to change that behavior. Let's talk practically about that. I mean, we talk a lot on podcast about there are limits to what the state has decided to do or can do when it comes to perhaps changing exclusionary zoning patterns or other things that affect the local control over development in the state. In fact, it's been a central tension for the past four years, right? And so the federal government is even one further step removed so what, you know, particularly without the support of Congress, assuming that for the moment, what could they do that would be any different and not run into the same problems that the state government has had on these these issues? Right. Well, two things. One, with respect to Congress, I would say there has been at a high level bipartisan support for reducing regulatory barriers. Now, what regulatory barriers some Republicans might see and what some regulatory barriers that Democrats might see might be different. But there is some commonality on regulatory barriers that I think you could get congressional support for if, say, there's an infrastructure bill, things like that. So I would not rule out some bipartisan support on reducing regulatory barriers. And so things like attaching transportation funding, which, you know, emanates from the federal government to ensuring you don't get that infrastructure funding or transportation funding unless you have lowered certain regulatory barriers. And so, again, that could cut both ways, as we know, with California. But I do think that we might be able to find some commonality on that from housing perspective. So that's what the congressional, uh, without Congress, I do think the Biden administration, again, with affirmatively furthering fair housing, could extend some of those rules to suggest that cities ought to be looking at other kinds of funding, uh, not just the HUD funding that affirmatively furthering, you know, kind of is aimed towards right now. Forgive the horrific pun. I want to stick on the transportation grant stick uh-huh. for uh, just a second here, because, you know, that was an idea that Governor Gavin Newsom floated nearly two years ago, which was basically derailed because of political opposition within the state legislature and from cities. But even beyond that, there was a feeling of, well, depending on how he devised this, cities are very, very good at coming up with ways of avoiding those types of sticks, right? Mm -hmm. What makes you think that the federal government could be more effective with the same type of approach? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not suggesting this would be easy, but I do think, again, and maybe it's with new dollars, like with infrastructure dollars, that you could, from the get-go, kind of attach some of these regulatory barrier elimination to. So, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna about this. I just think you are likely to see some push in that direction. Maybe we could switch to the art of the ideal, if you will, for in terms of Biden's housing plan, which Matt and I discussed during our section, was not super detailed during the primary here in California, but now has really become a very lengthy and expansive document. So something that stood out to us is his 
proposal to make Section 8 subsidies available to everybody who is eligible, which is way different than what it is now. Is that something that you see as one of the bigger ticket or bigger ideas that he has in his plan? Well, it's definitely a bigger ticket item. <laughs> yeah. Clearly transformational in, in a number of ways. If If that could be done, I would say that is something that really cannot be done without congressional approval. I mean, you know, his plan also includes a renter's credit for people over a certain income, which frankly was an idea that we at the Turner Center floated back when we thought there might be a Clinton administration in, Mm -hmm. in 2017, because if you put these entitlement type programs in the tax code, it is much harder to unwind. Universal vouchers or any kind of voucher program is subject to annual discretionary approval by the Appropriations Committee and by Congress, both houses of Congress, every year. And I don't see that happening. Even if we win the Senate, it's still such a big ticket item in scheme of all of the big ticket items that need to be done right now. So I am skeptical that it will happen. But I do think there could be some incremental approach. So added vouchers for homeless Some added vouchers for uh, communities that are particularly challenged by an economic recovery. You know, so I could see maybe some support for some increase in rental assistance. And I definitely think it's possible in a stimulus bill to get Mm -hmm. temporary increase in rental assistance that may come in a voucher form. And then once you get that, maybe some of that will stick for longer term. But those are all negotiations and incremental steps. But I don't think we'll see right out of the box a universal voucher. Talk to us a little bit more about the renter's tax credit, what it would actually do, and then maybe if you could actually frame it as you know somewhat of an alternative to a significant expansion to Section 8. Basically, a renter's credit could do what a voucher does, which is essentially subsidize the difference between a maximum market rate rent, you know, some fair mm-hmm. market rent, and a person's ability to pay by giving them a refundable credit. Think about it like the earned income tax credit so that you Mm -hmm. get that credit even if you're not taxes. And by the way, California has a renter's credit. It's just minuscule. I think it's it's like $65 or something, you know, a year, a a little bit more for couples. So it's, it's the same basic concept. And a number of states have basic renter's credit. If you embed it into the tax code, it doesn't go away, you know, unless you have a major tax bill. The flip side is that in order to create it, you need a major tax bill. Um, so so that's, that's the idea of it. And the other big challenge with a credit is it comes once a year and rent pay is rent due. once a month, right? And you yeah. pay rent once a month. So you would need to change the administrative systems to, I think, deliver that credit more regularly. So it would take major changes at the IRS, which frankly, they've had to do relative to the healthcare rebates, you know, on the mandatory healthcare side. So again, these are 
aspirational and I think in this environment will be difficult, but still worth people promoting, including people inside the Biden administration. Also, one of the advantages of doing this type of change through the tax code is that it simplifies kind of the administrative apparatus for a safety net program. So instead of all of kind of the cumbersome regulatory hurdles and support that Section 8 would need, it just all comes through the IRS, which, like you mentioned with the earned income tax credit, has a decent record of doing this type of thing. So is that another quiver in the renter's tax credit argument? It is. I mean, you'll hear some pushback from some people on that, like there is no housing quality standards or how do you have housing quality? How do you ensure? My response to that is we should already have that in code enforcement for all private (laughs) rental housing, you know, should have a local system to ensure that they're meeting basic housing quality standards. And we shouldn't be relying on a voucher to ensure that the housing is of appropriate quality. I know Liam wants to desperately move on from the renter's tax credit. So go go ahead, Liam. I do, yes. My question is about, there are a lot of things in the president-elect's housing plan, but you just talked about some of the ways that he could be hemmed in and for a variety of reasons, even if Democrats were to control, right? And so can you give us your thoughts on what maybe the biggest idea is within his plan that you think is actually possible to accomplish? Well, I've already mentioned the biggest idea, which is the fair housing enforcement and fair housing. Even that, to be frank, Congress can put a rider on the appropriations bill and say, which they did previously and say, you know, you can't implement this. I'm not sure it will this time around, given all the other issues, it will rise to that level. So the biggest potential bipartisan support may be for the down payment assistance for potential homeowners. And, you know, again, if there's a tax bill, a home buyer's tax credit, again, I think that would have very broad political support if there's a change in the tax code. But honestly, there are other big finance issues. And so I think some of those from an administrative perspective, you know, foreclosure prevention, dealing with, you know, I know this is kind of way out. Most people in California aren't thinking about what happens to Fannie and Freddie. But I do think one of the most consequential decisions is changing the head of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which controls their fate right now and keeping them as a apparatus of federal policy uh, would beneficial. And I think that Biden will be able to have an impact over that. I'm curious from your own experience at HUD, what would be the most pressing advice that you would give the new HUD secretary on their first day? If you had half hour with them over lunch, what would be the thing that you would desperately want to communicate with them? You know, I would ensure that they understand where the problem areas are inside of HUD in terms of running these programs Mm. and where they will likely be attacked from the right. You know, this fair housing is one issue. The other issue is just going to be, quote unquote, waste, fraud and abuse. I mean, there's going to be attacks on just the existing apparatus of the functioning of HUD. And I'd be sure that he or she understands where their vulnerabilities are. I mean, that's what we saw 
in the Obama administration, going and attacking the way the home program was administered and making it seem like it was the most corrupt thing on earth and it was all because a bunch of Democrats ran it. He's got to protect his or her flank. You know, Carol, I got to be honest here. You know, I'm hearing a lot of like basically all that Biden's going to be able to do is roll back what Trump did and restore what Obama did and then play defense when Republicans attack him. What am I missing here? I mean, why, are, are, is there anything that Biden may be affirmatively furthering HUD or something like that that he could be doing? You know, why, I guess, what I'm going to call, from your perspective, pessimism, and correct if I'm wrong, in terms of what a Biden administration could do beyond stop things that Trump did or bring back things Obama did. Let me be clear. If you have no cooperation from Congress, honestly, you are correct. I think, though, where you are maybe being more pessimistic than I am is that I do think this administration will have an ability to influence Congress in this moment in time. And I'll just go back to stimulus, and we didn't spend enough time on that, but I do think we're going to get another stimulus bill. It's obvious to everyone that we need it. And I think there's going to be opportunities there as there was in 2009. I mean, the biggest things that we got done, greening public housing and transforming, you know, how we provided funding, much of that came from stimulus dollars. And I think there will be an opportunity for that through an economic recovery bill. And I do think you shouldn't underestimate Republicans going along with that, just as uh, you know, Democrats didn't like Paulson's original stimulus ideas, but under the so, under Bush, yeah. Under Bush. So like as they were coming in, but it's so obvious and especially right now with all these Republican states being hit very hard. So that makes me optimistic. Just switching quickly to the outgoing administration, could you isolate maybe the damaging thing Trump has done in terms of California's housing crisis and then uh, maybe the most positive thing, in your opinion, that he's done? Well, I think one of the big damages is just the approach on homelessness, like the threats that we're going to bring in the military to clean out the camps Mm. and not partnering with localities, but rather just trying to show them up, I think has been damaging in in addition to the fair housing stuff, which I know you don't want me to keep mentioning, but it is, (laughs) it is, it is probably not true. It is probably the the biggest damage. The other thing I would say is they've been cautious, extremely, extremely cautious about how they look at the FHA program in terms of not wanting to use FHA to help people with more limited credit or more limited incomes in a proactive way as opposed to ensure that they protect the risk of the agency. Now, look, I was in charge of protecting the risks to the agency and think that is really important, but I think they have not pushed on the innovation side to improve how they can use the apparatus of the government, that the programs that they have to better serve people. And again, so that's another 
big benefit that I think the Biden administration absolutely will be able to do. That feels incremental, but it is important. Yeah, let me ask on the one aspect of the, I know we're coming back to the fair housing thing, but something that's interesting to me is, let's be honest, outside of people who listen to this podcast, have ever heard of affirmatively furthering fair housing before <laughs> Trump did what he did, right? You right. know, over the summer. I mean, he talked about this as, you know, keeping poor people and criminals, I mean, very racist and, and, and classist uh, overtones even to what he was talking about in terms of the suburbs and this rule. How do you think his sort of rhetoric on this actually change the political and policy debate that we may now be having in California and across the country on fair housing issues? It may have changed it in some locales that were eager to hear that or, you know, played into their pre-existing concerns. I don't, you know, maybe I live in my little bubble here in the Bay Area, but I don't perceive that that has had any impact in terms of turning people to his direction in most localities. And if anything, what I see is the George Floyd moment really opening up people's hearts and minds and the pandemic opening up people's hearts and minds to the inequalities, you know, just exposing them so blatantly that I think that's, again, a a bit of a silver lining for all this distress is... That's what I feel like most people in California have taken away. I don't see for California his rhetoric having made any difference. I want to shift gears a little bit towards how the pandemic is affecting appetite and demand for living in big cities and particularly urban cores. The data is lagging here, but the data that we have seen so far does indicate that places like San Francisco and certain parts of L.A., You are seeing somewhat of an exodus fueled by the pandemic and kind of the expansion of telework opportunities. Um, You see people leaving these places and going to the suburbs if they can. And you also see in these places rents dipping and rents increasing in, in some of these suburbs. So I wanted to ask, do you think that that pattern persists into next year after we start getting a vaccine? And does it have a a real kind of permanent impact on housing policy in California and how we think about it? I would say this. I think that is really an unanswerable question. And I've been on the phone with some economists who believe that this really is a permanent shift. And partly, again, like everything else with the pandemic, accelerated shifts that were already happening. So all those young renters that have been renting in the urban core, my my children are this age, are now, you know, 30, 35, getting married and, you know, wanting more space anyway, things like that. So, I mean, like the home buying market is on fire for those right. who are still working, right? So I do think it has accelerated some of those trends. I personally believe strongly, because I'm old enough to have lived through multiple cycles <laughs> in the real estate market, that yes, this is a disruption through next year to answer your question. But I don't think it is permanent in the sense of when people are going to go back to offices, people want to be together, people have fatigue about not having those creative juices with their colleagues. And so I really do think that, you know, the cities are 
not going to implode. Around the edges, you are going to see some some movement. My bigger concern, to tell you the truth, is that also in California, like hugely conflicts with our climate change goals. So, you know, are we going to continue to just sprawl then? I mean, the people have to live somewhere. So we're going to continue to sprawl in single family subdivisions. Um, Yeah. Just to push on that a little bit, I feel like the telework portion of that is the counter argument. So sprawl becomes less problematic if you don't have to do the commute. If you don't have access to public transportation to take it to your job, well, maybe that isn't such a big deal if you can just work from home four days a week, five days a week. True, but that does presuppose that the teleworking at that kind of level is really going to continue. And again, I hear from tech workers, et cetera. I mean, I I don't think it's going to be permanent telecommute, number one. Number two, you're in the office three days a week. Yes, that helps the climate change goals, but it doesn't mitigate extensively, I would say, that lack of commuting. And then the last thing I'll say is the people hurt most are again those workers who do need to actually who who deem to actually work in a place and commute and they're the ones that traditionally have been moving the farthest out and needing to commute the longest distance so you know I'm a little concerned about reversing course too significantly Very off-topic question, Carol. So folks probably do not know that both you and I went to the same high school uh, outside Philadelphia. (laughs) Many years apart, but yes. Okay, yes. Um, And so what do you miss the most about Philadelphia in the fall? That's my, my last question for you. Oh, my God. Oh, well, you... you Please don't say the Eagles, Carol. (laughs) You know, there's no question, Liam, that it's the fall change, uh, the the leaves. Oh, my Lord. The leaves, the the, the slight chill in the air. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'm with you. It's true. My favorite part of the section is Matt just groaning over and over again. So... You know, what, what's interesting is that I have increasingly become more of a nativist Californian since starting this podcast. And I mostly blame you, Liam. But, you know, enjoy going outdoors in December, wearing sandals in March. You know, those those are all great things. California is great. So. California is great. No getting can't, around it. Can't just, you know, throw on the flip flops to go get a, a cheesesteak at Geno's <laughs> when it's negative 25 degrees outside. All right. Well, that's a very unsatisfying end. Um, uh, well, thank you again, Carol. We, we appreciate it very much. Thank you, Carol. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And I'm Liam Dillon, and my Twitter handle is the opposite of my name. It is Dylan Liam. Thank you again to our editor extraordinaire, Victor Figueroa. Victor Figueroa, unknown whether he falls on the McNuggets or French Laundry divide. Yes, it's a spectrum. I think it's a clear divide. (laughs) Thanks again, and we will be back in two weeks.